can now take KRBN Internet News Talk Radio with you on your mobile phone as we are making it easier to listen to the great hosts here on KRBN, including our very own West Lane County Commissioner, Jay Bozovich. It's free and available on Google Play. Just look for player.fm. That's player.fm and search for KRBN. Live from Lane County, Oregon, it's the Bose No Show with your host, West Lane County Commissioner, Jay Bozovich. And now, here's Jay. Good afternoon, and welcome to another edition of the Bose Nose Show, and I'm your host, Westland County Commissioner Jay Bozovich, and we're coming to you live from beautiful downtown Elmira, and it's another great day in the Pacific Northwest. Today, I have a guest on my show who's coming to us live from beautiful downtown Springfield, and if anyone remembers the old Toyota ads... <laughs> Springfield, David Lovell. David, great to have you on the show. Super to be here, Jay. Thanks for having me. <laughs> so I mentioned in my promo on Facebook um, that I've known David for a long time. Uh, Elizabeth and I moved to the great Pacific Northwest from Maryland in December of 1993, and I met David probably in January of 1994, I think Elizabeth actually met him in December of 1993 because she started work for a local uh, magazine publishing company. And David is, was a commercial photographer and probably one of the best, you know, in, you know, in the area and probably in several states. Uh, and Elizabeth's a graphic designer. And they, they ended up working professionally together. But I got to know David as a friend uh, besides, you know, Elizabeth and him working together a lot on all sorts of projects throughout her career and his. Um, David and I ended up workout partners for a while. You know, so we've known each other for quite a while. And uh, I am really happy to say that David has decided to enter into my world. Yeah. (laughs) Thrown his hat in the ring for uh, Lane County Commissioner for the Springfield seat here. Uh, coming up uh, to be elected here in 2022. And uh, I just want folks to get to know David a little bit. But, David, just, re- you know, real quick, do your 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 two-minute bio here for people so they can know. Well, I was born at a young age. I got married at a younger age. I got married at 18 to my lovely wife of 41 years now. We joined the Navy because that was the best thing to do at the time. We spent six years in the Navy and ended up in San Diego where I – started as a freelance photographer for the LA Times. And then after that, I figured I had a son on the way. I better start getting a real job. So I had a four-month stint at what I called the Bomb Factory, which is at General Dynamics in in, uh, in uh, uh, San Diego. And uh, that didn't work out so well. So I've been freelancing ever since. Moved back to Oregon so my wife could go to the dental hygiene school. We started a family here. We had two great kids. And uh, as we grew, we got into ministry. We have a ministry in Uganda now that grew. We adopted another son from Uganda. And uh, lo and behold, after all that happened, we uh, had a couple opportunities to buy a building in downtown Springfield uh, 15 years ago. We bought the Washburn building, cashed in our 401k, and uh, went from there. And then from there, some other opportunities arise. And then uh, our really good friends of 40 years 
joined forces with us and we built a team and man, look at Springfield now. It's uh, been almost redeveloped and we're continuing down the block. So that's a nutshell right there. <laughs> and we're running for county commissioner today as if that's not enough. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. As if it's not enough. So um, you, you didn't, you said you were born at a young age, but you didn't mention where you were born and where you grew up and where you went to high school. Well, I, I was born here in Oregon, or in Eugene, Sacred Heart Hospital. I couldn't remember the floor, but uh, I grew up in the Santa Clara area before it was developed. I went to Madison Middle School, which now has been torn down and rebuilt. And back in those days, you could choose what high school you wanted to go to, which was kind of unique. And so I kind of I wanted to be a photographer. I, I kind of wanted to leave town and go make my mark in the world. And so there was this photography teacher uh, at Sheldon High School. So I transferred from what would be North, my career to North Eugene, over to Sheldon High School, and that's where I graduated and got a job at Gerlach's Camera Store at Fifth and Main in downtown Springfield as a 15-year-old kid, and that's where it, where it started. So you've been in, in downtown Springfield actually since you were 15, then. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And you know, <clears throat> down, I mean, you know, you think it was dark in the days before you know the renovation started happening. I mean, think about it. You know. 45, oh my gosh, is that, that old, 45 years ago. Uh, it's funny because the building right across the street from where Gerlox used to be, Gerlox is now the art center, the art center museum. So my partner and I had just bought, Bob Miller, we just bought a building a number of months ago at 5th and Main. And so I watched them take that building to a really nice historic building and make it into this kind of like ugly 70s kind of building. And now we're taking that whole building and ripping it back apart and making it vintage and nice again so had i known that then back 15 i told those guys no nah, don't put that plywood there we'll just tear it down later <laughs> <laughs> yeah had you known all that um yeah have, have, had you known all that you'd have bought real estate in springfield a lot sooner when it was cheaper <laughs> yeah and, yeah it's not getting any cheaper that's for sure but you know um there's still a lot of opportunity downtown in springfield i mean you know if you look around the nation uh, there's a real resurgence of uh, small towns, uh, people buying, you know, like in Albany, there's a guy, Charles Weathers, I think his name is. He's doing some stuff there. There's a lot of small towns making a comeback, and, you know, it's because we don't have enough housing. And, you know, those buildings, nobody wants to tear those buildings down, and if they do, they're too expensive to build. So rehabbing them is by far the most viable option anymore. Yeah. I have to apologize for that squeaking sound in the background. That's one of the dogs and their toys that decided to uh, <laughs> serenade while I'm on on the so, show here. <clears throat> so for the Bozo's audience, if you're hearing this squeak, 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 squeak down there, that's one of my poodles. <laughs> so he's not adjusting the whoopee cushion. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, Continuing on with some of the Springfield story, tell us a little bit about how you ended up becoming a real estate developer from being a photographer minister. You know, that, that wasn't just a, you know, you, you weren't, that wasn't your chosen field. <laughs> no, you know, realistically, the, the, the greatest goal I ever had was to create a coffee table book with some really nice pictures in it that somebody would say after I'd passed, oh, he was such a good photographer. And and realistically, what I photographed most is like food and, you know, raw chicken breasts for catalogs and, you know, all kinds of just weird stuff 
as a as a commercial photographer. So, yeah, that that whole thing started uh, December of twelve. It was this classic kind of story out of Castaway, right? Uh, December fourth, uh, we had making a, we'd made a couple of trips to Uganda. My wife had been there with our partner's wife, Mary. And uh, she had met this young man and really had a connection with him. His name's William. And uh, we really thought we needed to do something for him. We were going to bring him here as a student. So we went there and there were, we had some legal issues and couldn't do it. So the legal issue was we needed a legal guardianship. So we, I, I went back on December 4th of 2012 and I told Nita, I'll hang the Christmas lights when I get back. I'll be gone 10 days. I have a court date. I'll get legal guardianship. I'll get a visa. I'll bring him home. Everything's said and done. Well, when I landed, uh, we'd, we'd left a couple of times and kind of left this kid hanging. And I said, look, this is my promise to you. I'm not going to leave this country without you this time. And I never knew what that word would, mean, would mean. So uh, when everything went sideways and they said, you can't take a minor out of Africa unless you adopt him, it was like, oh, my gosh. So long story short, I was there three months uh, living in Uganda while my wife uh, dealt with all of the hassles and hoops of, of adoption. And we adopted this young man and brought him home. But, you know, that, that was a, a real turning point in the career because everybody expected me to be back for a photo shoot 10 days later. And basically all the clients that I had basically had moved on. So when I got back, there was really not a whole lot to do except figure something out. And that's really where it started was downtown. <clears throat> so, you know, one building later, once we got the Washburn building – we decided that, uh, that there was a pastor in Uganda. He said, well, Mr. Lovell, you need to get more money so you can come here more often to Africa. And I'm like, well, yeah, but this guy next door at Econo Sales would sell me his building. Maybe we could rehab the apartments and make some more money and figure this out. And he says, we will pray that God will give you this building. And I'm like, yeah, well, Ethiopia is starving. What does he care about a building on Main Street? But, you know, lo and behold, apparently he does care. And, you know, I talked to Alan and we struck up a deal and... Bob Miller, my great friend and partner in crime, said, I'm in. And so here we are. We developed that building, and then, of course, it led to another and another, and Springfield is the better for it, and we have a lot of great people down there. Yeah, but it wasn't just that, you know, you had this need to kind of change career um, a little bit, uh, and, and we're looking for something. You also really put your own skin in the game, and, and that leads to another story from yeah. you got later, but – but just tell my audience a little bit about the skin you put in the game when you bought that first building. Well, yeah, we uh, back in 2008, everybody remembers that year, right? Real estate was a great investment, how it tanked. We had two – I convinced my wife a year or two before to leverage the equity in our house to buy two rental properties. So we bought a couple of houses, you know, when you could do that with your signature and didn't have to qualify for a loan. And then uh, I really needed a place to put my photo studio. So I drove a different way home every day that I could to kind of look around the block. And I drove by Springfield on the corner of uh, Pioneer Parkway in Maine, where the Washburn Cafe is. And there was a for sale sign that was being put up. And I thought, well, I might as well check it out. So the owners of that building were in a fight, and they were going to see who was going to sell what first. And so basically, I came in and, and made an offer and uh, bought, we bought that building when we sold those two houses, rolled that in. And then um, there was two, there was a space above the Washburn that used to be a living space. And I thought, well, it'd be really cool to build some like New York style lofts up there because, you know, those are kind of she-she and, you know, it's kind of a thing to do. And so I convinced my wife to allow me to sell my 401k, um, which was, you know, you take a big tax hit when you do that. 
But, you know, I figured with the, with the you know, math that I knew from high school, I figured in a couple of years I'd be whole again if I could just rent these apartments. So we rented these, we cast a 401k, constructed these apartments, and about midway through the apartment cycle, the fire chief came by and said, you know, Mr. Lobo, we really want you to put a fire sprinkler system in this building, which was $45,000 that we weren't budgeting for. So that precipitated that I had to then look at where I was going to get that money, and I didn't have it. And so I ended up selling a, a, a prize sports car that I had restored, spent 15 years restoring, and I sold it so that we could bridge the gap on the finances. So when you talk about skin in the game, I'm now not driving the car I always wanted to have. <laughs> but, you know, it, you can't take it with you, right? It's a price to pay for everything. Yeah, it, it just it demonstrates your commitment because, you know, you really wanted to see downtown Springfield change. And you you bought this building and you wanted to, to get some apartments for people who live down there. You took your 401k, your retirement savings, invested it. And when things went, you know, like with any sort of renovation, things go a little bit gunny and, and the price goes up. Over budget, yeah. yeah. You sold your dream car. You know, so you've got your retirement and your dream car invested in downtown Springfield. You know, that, that's what I want. I wanted people to understand just, you know, what you put in. Um, you know, people, some people are aware you've got a partner in some of your other buildings that's, you know, that is, you know, putting in some, some of the cash. But I wanted people to understand just what you put into that, that, in, that initiating spark. Yeah. That's changing that whole Main Street block. And, you know, from there, like you said, you talked to the guy at Econa Sales, and it moved on down the block from there right. uh, as you've renovated those places. And now it's the happening spot. You know, I, I met you for dinner down there on a Wednesday night a couple of weeks ago, and I couldn't find a parking place on a Wednesday night. Isn't that great? <laughs> yeah. So, so it, it's a hopping spot, and, and, and folks, if you're in the Eugene Springfield Lane County area and you want to have a nice place to kind of walk around and pick and choose restaurants and maybe do a little shopping in the evening, um, downtown Springfield's a, a, a neat little town now. It's not what it, you know. I worked in downtown Springfield throughout the mid '90s. Some of the the worst of the bad bars and, and the fight a night and two on Friday and Saturday in each bar. <laughs> Um, yeah, it was uh, it was a little bit of a rough area for a while there. Um, and you know, as I I worked at Fifth and C just off of Main Street there, and, and we literally ran out of the building at five o'clock to get the heck out of downtown. And, and you know, you, you described. It, it, granted, it was terrible. I mean, I would find stuff in corners behind my buildings when we first bought them. Needles women's paraphernalia, you just didn't want to know what was going on over there. But, you know, it, it, you describe also, too, it wasn't for lack of want. People in, in, in the community of Springfield wanted something better for themselves, and they're the kind of people that always drive for something better for themselves. But like you said before, there was a spark. Somebody somebody has to lead. Somebody has to take a risk and, and prove that it's okay. Like Planktown, when Planktown first came down there, you remember that corner used to be like a women's kind of tea thing where you had antiques and a bunch of booths and stuff. And, you know, it, it was fine. I mean, you know, downtown Springfield had a lot of antique stores. and But that wasn't really going to be an economic driver or changer to, to, to you know, regentrify that area. 
And so when Plankton came by, people were like, what? Who's going to go down there? Who's going to go see? Well, Plankton, Bart did a great job. You know, he got a great lease. He refabbed that whole thing, and he's got he, – it's packed. I mean, typically on a Friday, Saturday night, it's a half-hour wait to get in. And so he was also too part of that spark and momentum. And, it, you know, it just takes like – remember when, when you know, Jim Ryan broke the four-minute mile? Nobody thought it could be done, right? And so he was the first person to break the four-minute mile. It, it kind of almost gives permission for other people to say, oh, I can take that risk, and you know, we'll be okay. And I think that's kind of what opens the floodgates of what happened in downtown Springfield, which could happen anywhere. Yep. Yeah, with the right spark, somebody with enough forethought and, and innovative thinking um, like you, I, I, I'd love to see this repeat downtown Springfield across Lane County. Um, and, and But, you know, I'm going to get you to tell another story here because the skin in the like, – I want to stay with the skin in the game theme a little bit. Um, All right. Tell us a little bit about some of what you've been doing with your ministry in trying to help Ugandan people help themselves. And and particularly, this has to relate to, you know, bridal dresses and a few other things. Sure. Tell, us, tell us that little story about, you know, you you had this vision that, that they needed to have skin in the game and, and how that's all worked out. All right. Well, we've got a like I said, we've got a ministry over there. Through being stuck there, basically, uh, I got involved with uh, 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 Julius Kintu, who's a Julius and Martha, who are great friends of ours. Now we've known them now for over a decade, um, and a great church there. And so there was just a lot of need in Uganda. That uh, you know, obviously, it's like any third world country. You, you see a lot of foreigners come, and you see a lot of money get poured in. You see a lot of effort get poured in. But you, it, that hole just never seems to fill. I mean, we're seeing that, you know, I don't want to, like, transition here, but just kind of dig a little bit. We're seeing that the more money we spend on some of our problems, the less results we get back. And it, it's that whole concept of skin in the game. There's, there's a concept we learned doing ministry in Uganda that anyone, anywhere, has the ability to give something into the solution to fix the problem. So, like, for example, when uh, when we're trying to make our ministries self-sustainable, I mean, like, we don't want to keep writing checks every every month to support it. We'd like, like to see them support it. My wife was thinking, well, you know, I wonder what they could do there. And so she just kind of got this brainstorm that, well, what about, like, a bridal shop of some sort? And so she called Martha, uh, Julius's wife, our contacts there, and said, hey, what do you guys do for weddings? And they said, well, we rent wedding dresses and she's like well rent wedding dresses why don't i call my girlfriends who's got these dresses boxed up in a closet see if i can take a few over and maybe we could start like a little rental business so uh that led to another conversation and then jennifer gaskill who owns a wedding bridal shop says well you know i've got lots of extra inventory i need to get rid of and you know lo and behold we took a hundred wedding dresses over there the first trip a hundred you know that's like you know two thousand dollars with excess baggage and then the skin in the game for this uh, for Julius and Martha was if you can prepare a place, get a space rented, then we'll come and set this business up and help it be self-supportive. And, you know, they've learned a lot of things about business. I mean, one of the things that's funny about Ugandans is their culture doesn't – they have no concept of what a deposit is. So when you say, what do you mean someone has to leave money or some sort of – something of value so that they bring the dress back? And my wife's response was, well, they need some skin in the game to bring the dress back. So that's what a deposit's all about. So when you take that on a, on a broader sense, we, we've come to, to we've come to you know uh, 
be uh, involved in a lot of stories. Like, for example, I went out into a village one time, and they wanted me to come out and, and preach the word. It's always like, Pastor, come preach the word. And so I, I go out to this village, and it's in the middle of you know nowhere. It's you know banana groves. You take a left off the off the dirt road, and you just plow through cornfields, and they hit the windshield, and you don't even know where you're going. And then you enter, you know, come out to this building, and you know you start meeting people and talking. Well, their skin in the game for me to come out there was they made this big presentation and they gave me a live chicken that was tied by the feet with a banana rope, basically made out of banana leaves, and laid it at my feet as a payment for me to come out there. A live chicken. What am I going to do with a live chicken? But, but, you know, and then, you know, the next day we went out to another village and they came out with two avocados, two avocados the size of footballs. I mean, these are huge avocados and they're absolutely stunning to eat, but... The reason I bring those stories up is that, you know, we as a society here in America, we're involved in this toxic charity kind of thing, whereas we just give money to things hoping we're going to get a result. But the really true sense of the word where we get a result is when somebody comes in, gives something of value, somebody who's receiving gives something back of value, and then together that value is multiplied somehow bigger than the two of them combined. And I think that's what I've, I've learned more about not just Uganda, but just how America works as well. And I think we've missed the boat on a lot of you know, social issues because we're doing toxic charity instead of actual value charity. Yeah, getting people to have that skin in the game is so important. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, I, I feel that's, I, you know, don't want to get too far off topic, and but I feel sometimes that that's some of the cycle with our homeless uh, population is we're just not, asking them to put enough skin in the game, whether it's a commitment to dealing with their their addiction issue or, you know, a commitment to, to work on life skills. Um, we have to get, you know, they have something they can give. Right. Um, you know, everybody, Jay, you're right. And, and even in the worst of conditions, everybody has something value to offer. I mean, you, you know, I mean, if, if you're a person of faith like I am or whoever, I mean, you know, what, 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 a, what a faith asks you is can you just give me your life? Everybody has a life to give. Everybody has breath to give regardless of how rich or poor you are. And, and so that's where I think it, where we miss that. We miss the value of the humanity that can be offered back if that humanity is offered back. So we don't build this whole system of entitlement. You know, or abuse rather. I mean, obviously the homeless issue is, a, you know, in my opinion, is it, it, it's a four-skinned onion. It has four different issues. But um, for the most part, you know, people who want to know that they're valued and what they're giving is of value, there's a lot that can be done with that. Yeah, definitely. So um, continuing a little bit of the story of, of your son you adopted, because this leads to some of your interest in the county um, yeah. in general. And, and, and you and I also share, you know, I did mention briefly we, we used to be workout partners. One of the reasons why we stopped being workout partners was our coach that was training us at the time committed suicide. So we're both really familiar with, you know, mental health issues and, and even suicide, uh, and it's touched us both deeply. Right. Um, you know, Dom was was a good friend to both of us, and uh, and what was really sad was you were out of the country when when Don, right, and so you came back to him having committed suicide. Um, that 
said you also are experiencing the issues of mental health with your adopted son and experiencing different counties systems and how well they work or not or don't work and it's kind of somewhat of your motivation i think behind your your desire to run for county commissioner because the county has a lot to do with mental health systems and, right. and now our local system just doesn't seem to quite be working but tell us a little bit about your experience you mean, you know, I'm I'm a restorer. I mean, most men, they, we're classified as fixers. You know, you hand us a wrench, and we're going to figure out something to do with it, right? And and you you mentioned too that when when people have personal uh, emotion and suffering involved in an issue, that issue becomes more alive than it's ever been. I mean, for the most part, if you're not you don't run across homeless people or nobody in your family's got a mental condition, those are things way off your radar. So. But when they touch you deeply at a personal level, then you start thinking about, okay, how can not only can I survive this suffering, but how, how does it affect our whole community? So William, um, he, uh, you know, it, it, this is also you know, mental health is also spiritual. So in, in my in my mind, so there, there's kind of a twofold cookie to this. Um, he suffers from schizophrenia. His uh, birth father in Uganda, I've met him. He also suffers from schizophrenia. And in, in a third world country, they just let you do whatever you're going to do. They throw you food on the ground, and you pick it up and eat it, and you live in the dirt and the weeds, and everybody's okay with that. And I'm not okay with that, obviously. I don't want my son living in the dirt and the weeds all of his life. So uh, when he decided to move out, we really didn't understand the signs of schizophrenia. We just thought he was just being a 22-year-old, you know, turd and wanted to go do his own thing. But, you know, the police picked him up. He was trespassing at a Winco. He spent some time in jail a couple of days. I mean, it was, these things were just kind of, you know, over and over, and we realized that he had a, a mental health issue. So the problem is, is that Lane County's got this rat wheel, is what we call. A person uh, roams the street until they do something kind of semi-stupid or semi, you know, intrusive or trespassing or some minor thing. The police pick them up. The poli- And let me tell you about the police. The police in Springfield and Eugene are unmistakably some of the best people on the planet. These guys can handle this mental illness stuff with these people because they deal with it every day. They are just top-notch. So I just want to give a real quick plug to our police officers and stuff. They're out there just doing a great job. And Cahoots, same way. Cahoots is great. Um, So after the police go pick them up, they take them to the hospital. The hospital has some sort of, you know, exam they do, and they just discharge them on the street again. So there's there's no lane that they can travel to kind of get to where they can find some help. It's just there's so many pockets of nonprofits doing individual work, and it, it's good work, but it just doesn't connect. It doesn't connect, and it doesn't ultimately give a, 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 a definitive approach to how someone could go from offending, trespassing in a WinCo to the hospital to getting the help and medication and counseling or whatever else they, they need. And so, you know, Lane County's got more nonprofits than any county in, in the nation, and they don't talk to each other. So uh, William decided he was going to go to Nevada, hooked on, got a, got a motorcycle trip to Bend one day, and then a couple of days later shut down Highway 97 with some signs because he was going, you know, uh, you know, a little bit crazy there. And so the Deschutes County place picked him up, and he's been there now about two and a half months, and he's been on this road because Deschutes County is a little more organized. And so, you know, he, he's, he's found like kind of a little halfway house he can stay in. He, he can come and go as he pleases. But the real issue that we've found is not, is twofold. Is one is when agencies don't talk, nothing gets done. 
We don't get value for our dollars as far as what we're investing as taxpayers. And 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 and, and secondly is that uh, you, you know the whole humanity thing. You, you don't the, the, you, you never come to a place where where where, where, where William can actually get the help that he needs. And and, the, and the, I guess the third problem is is that he's also an adult, so we can't make any decisions for him. I mean, the old story I, I, I keep telling was if, if I got hit by a car and was bleeding in the middle of the street unconscious, people would make decisions on my behalf to save my life. But at the same time, we can't do that with some of the mentally ill people because they are by law a legal adult and they make all the decisions. Well, when someone's not in their right mind, it's really difficult for them to make the healthy decisions that are going to get them better. And so that's part of the struggle as well. So right now he's doing pretty good. He's in. He's still in, in Deschutes County. He's in Bend. Uh, but winter's coming. So, you know, that that's another set of challenges. So, I, you know, we're, we're taking a day, a day at a time, which is what everybody in the mental health business does. Yeah. Thank you, you know, for telling that personal story. Um, and, and it's it just – it is reflective of, of we just need to get the system to talk better. HIPAA hasn't helped that. No. You know. You know, so you get to where agencies are afraid to talk because they think they might violate HIPAA. Sometimes they're not, um, but it's still very difficult to, to, to get that communication and, and get that system to work together because there's that, that fear. And, and as you said, because he's an adult, he also has these rights to refuse treatment, et cetera. Um, and I've, I've described the people um, and I'm going to borderline get into uh, uh, another issue that I don't want to want to get into till you know, we finish talking and, and you you said what you need to do and, and if we decide you know you can go on about your day and I can I can get into those issues for the rest of the audience to maybe call <laughs> but um, you know the, the idea of these the mandated vaccines um, it's particularly troublesome for some of the folks that work in our adult correction system because adults they work with are people, you know, like William quite often are severely mentally ill, even worse than William. Mm -hmm. And they bring them into the jail because they've, they've, you know, assaulted somebody, you know, know, threatened them with a weapon or something, screaming and yelling in their face. Uh, So it's, it's a person crime. They can't just kind of shuffle them out of the system. They end up in the jail overnight at least if not for several days, and they can't medicate that person. No. No matter how violent that person's getting, whether they're trying to bash their head against the wall, the, 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 what's left to the deputies working in that jail is basically to try and strap that person down in, in a safety chair so they don't harm themselves and other people. Um, not, you know, they, can't, they can't give them a tranquilizer. It's something as simple as just giving them something that would calm them down. Mm-hmm. Not allowed to do that. Mm-hmm. Yet we're asking those same deputies that are dealing with those kind of people to get a mandatory vaccination. Yeah. <laughs> kind, of, kind of a juxtaposition. And, and, it, and that's, you know, leads to some of those questions about that whole policy. But I, but I just, it's one of the, the, the tough things about trying to resolve this whole issue of homelessness and mental health and addiction is people do have rights. 
we need to find a way, and, and you and I have talked about this, to help people, you know, put their skin in the game, you know, and help them in a way that that gets them to, to, to live their highest value life. You know, they may not be able to get totally back to fully functioning, tax-paying individuals that, that marry and have a family or whatever, but if they end up at least – functional enough to stay in a halfway house without destroying it and getting arrested daily, um, that's, a, that's a win for a lot of those people. Yeah. Our way of judging victories has got, has got to come to some achievable victory. I mean, what you're describing, Jay, is exactly it. I mean, we can't expect someone who's got some mental health issues who doesn't necessarily take the medication on a consistent level achieve, you know, an engineer's degree. We're looking at small. We're looking at small at, at, at small victories. The um, uh, the other, the other challenge is uh, oh, what was I what was I thinking? I was thinking that the uh, the, the other challenge for for William is is just a, a, a consistency and 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 the, and the thing about the people that you'd mentioned too in 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 the trade, uh, man, there is some specially angelic, gifted-hearted people. In police, in mental care, in social services, in, in in those in those kinds of positions where we expect so much emotionally and and suffrage from them, but they're not paid or the benefits or something we you know, tend to underfund it. I mean, you know, for example, I mean, Cahoots is like a national model now, right? And and they are one of the best organizations we've met that can really deal with this bridge kind of issue between society and the police to keep these these people out of the police spectrum. But you know they're only seventy percent funded in this area. So so why is it we put so much pressure and importance on this organization, but yet we hold back funding to make it fully successful? That doesn't make any sense to me. So so then we we say oh well we'll defund the police and we'll take money from the police and we'll pull us well that's, that's stupid too the police officers put their lives on the line every day and the police is not an us and them entity they are us they're part of the community they have families they have kids in school they shop at Winco whatever so so you know it it, it, it it's all about that is that is if we like we've talked about in downtown Springfield if we can make a community of people and make people realize that they're a part of a community, then I think we can have differences that can come together and really figure out the whys of what we want and figure out that we want, want the same thing. Yeah. And, you know, and the, the trade-off police or cahoots is, is a really irrational trade-off because if you talk to the folks that work the cahoots vans, uh-huh. they have to know that they have police backup available. Right. They will not go out in an area where they don't have backup. It's one of the reasons why we don't have cahoots in rural land county. We don't have sheriff deputies available to come if whoever they're responding to goes a little bit too far and they can't handle them. Um, and that's we've got a pilot uh, project right now to try and stand up a, a very similar, in fact, well, it's already in place in Florence, to stand up a mental health response crisis response team uh, in that area, but we haven't really been able to expand outside of the city of Florence where they have a police force because the mental health responders have to be able to call for police backup. Now, fortunately, we added two more resident deputies in the Florence area, and while those resident deputies are on, which, you know, is only during the day, 
really they can respond to calls around floors uh, now a little bit and and they've stretched their their distance a little but there's still that you have to have a a a rapid police response available to allow a cahoots model to actually work it's not fun one or the other they both have to be funded yeah exactly that's right yeah yeah and, and you know, and, and then you a have to attract people into those professions. You know, it's you know, it's. It, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I, I I feel like I'm a fighter, but I don't know that I'd want to put a bulletproof vest on every day and go to work. You know. Yeah. And, and you, you haven't mentioned David. What did your dad do 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 for a living? <laughs> Actually, my dad was a salesman, but I did grow up. Both of my uncles were police officers. In fact. Yeah, my uncle Dick Loveall was the captain of the police force in Eugene for a while. And at the same time, my uncle on my dad's side, his sister, married Jerry Smith, who was the captain of the police, who was instrumental in getting the downtown Springfield jail built. So at at one time, uh, Mr. Loveall, when I'd get stopped and I'd show my ID, uh, I would be given a warning instead of a ticket. So that was that was a, that was a great season in my life because you know I was just you know I wasn't just learning to drive but I wasn't the best driver so that was good but also when I grew up uh, as a kid I also got handcuffed to tables at weddings and you know was disciplined in the way that police would normally discipline young children <laughs> so, so I learned a great respect for police officers but but the thing about that I really valued from that experience was um, just they taught me about integrity and you know integrity and character. Is everything. You can't be a pastor. You can't be, I mean, you can certainly be a politician these days without integrity and character. I don't know how, because America's just not going to suffer with that anymore, in my mind. And, and you have to get the job done. Like, we, you know, bring us all back full circle about, you know, development. The reason downtown Springfield works and has worked now is because all the people that came to the table realized that whatever it took, they were going to get the job done. And, and that's really what it takes from, from, from all angles of all these problems we're talking about is that people have to realize that whatever it takes, we're going to get the job done. We're not going to just, forgive my expression, piss each other off and not talk to each other anymore. We've got to find out the whys. We've got to find out what really is important and get the job done. Yeah. So that leads me to, uh, you know, another story you've told me. Uh, and several that are kind of themed around this. You know, one of the issues in Lane County is the whole idea of how difficult it is to build a house, how expensive it is to build things. Yeah. You, you've been through the building process and permitting process and, and you know, having, you know, uh, reviewers and bureaucratic types come in and say, oh, by the way, you're going to have to spend a whole bunch of money because you got to move these meters or something. Yeah, so tell us a few of the stories of, of how you've managed to kind of make, you know, to, to troubleshoot some of that and and, um, and just, you know, you, you've got, you've had to deal with it, da- you know, on a daily basis as you've developed these old buildings and anyone that's, that's had an old house and had to open a wall up. <laughs> knows that you never know what you're going to find until you've actually opened that wall up. Uh, It's like a forest gump line. You never know what you're going to get. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to throw anybody under the bus here, but, you know, obviously, um, this is what I found out. I'm just going to kind of back up just a little bit. What I found out was this. I was just an ordinary guy that walked into the permit office one day and said, hey, 
I want to buy this building and I want to put an, I want to fix the apartments that were up back to some cool level of standard. So I didn't really know what I was doing and I was going in there to find help. And what I immediately found was just because of the, the way that the permitting and the desk visitations and all that, you know, this is pre-COVID obviously, was that there was just kind of like this adversarial posture at first is that, you know, I, I, can't, I can't imagine being a city worker in, in the permit office and everybody coming in and whining and griping because they can't build a fence where they want and they want a nine-foot fence and the code only allows for six and whatever. So, so there's always this kind of adversarial thing. But what I found out that over time, us coming in and saying, hey, we want to do, they would say, you need to do this. I would research it in the code because, you know, sometimes you got to find out for yourself what, what's right. And then I'd come back and say, okay, hey, look, I understand this is what you, what you want me to do. I understand this is what the code says. So how are we going to meet in the middle here? Because sometimes my experience was, and this is just my experience, is that uh, people from official offices would would stand around a project and say, well, we really would like you to do this. And it was, it was kind of like how they fit the whole world perfectly in their mind. It would be safe. Everything would be located right. Nothing would be old. It would all be new. And, and that was their picture. And they wanted you as a developer or a remodeler to bring this pretty nice, perfect picture in line where legally you're only doing this much work, so you're only legally required to do this. And so that was the difference that we had to understand. For example, uh, back in the old days in the building we bought, that was the Econosoft building, upstairs was eight apartments. Those apartments were closed for 30 years. There was oil drums up there, motorcycle parts enough to build like three motorcycles. There was old weed growing operation up there. There was stuff, there was oatmeal still left in the cupboards. It was, I mean, they just like ghost town. So we went up there, gutted all that off, you know, you know, emptied it all out. And then there was this power meter inside at the top of the stairs inside the building. So it's probably 80 feet into the property line on our building, inside the building. So according to the code law, the utility is responsible for everything to the meter. And I'm responsible as a, as a, as a property owner for everything from the meter on. So in the back of my building, there is some funky wiring. I mean, cracked, dangerous, sparking. And I've got this guy whom I've known forever. He's a super electrician, and he's a, he's a, he's a, a, a consultant to Bonneville, Dave Gerke, great guy. And he, him and I got back there, and he starts talking. He tells stories like an old hunter. He's, he's funnier than I'll get out. But he says, you know, here's the thing is that could burn your building down. So, so what they wanted us to do was move all those meters out to the alley and do these disconnects, which is fire disconnects. Well, that's fine. You know, I understand that. That's safe. But it's $40,000. So then I looked in the code, reminded the utility that they're responsible for all the to the meter, and that runs through most of the length of my building in the attic. So I said to them, I said, you know, huh, if my building catches on fire from something that's before the meter and somebody dies in my building, who's liable for that? So just having uh, the, the wherewithal and surrounding myself with really good advisors and reading the code before we started the project, to have someone assist me through that, obviously we gained more knowledge, but we also understood where some of the red tape bureaucracy happens and where it doesn't need to be. And so, you know, after we kind of established all that, we made a deal and we moved the meters out in the, out in the alley and the utility paid a large portion and we paid a portion. So um, we worked it out. But... But that it, it, in itself is, I think, where 
where the bureaucracy locks up is maybe there's not enough staff in the permitting department, and so there's not enough time to dedicate to working a solution out, whereas people just throw the plans in the corner and you don't get your permit for six months. And I think that's what happens now. So hopefully, you know, with your experience and, and you know, that doesn't – it's not just permits. There's a lot of places where people come in to interact with government where they kind of get that, you know, people that have been, you know, behind the counter for years and years and years have, you know, sort of have an adversarial relationship with the pub public where they they kind of quickly throw something out there, and it doesn't always match what's allowed or required, and, and um, having a, a commissioner that has the ability to step in and help you know, negotiate the proper middle uh, out of that, you know, will be really helpful. So I, I can see as a commissioner your ability to help your constituents work through some of the issues they have with the county, whether it's a, in a permit office or, um, you know, with assessment taxation or some other department in, at the county. Um, I think that's really um, a great skill that you have and, and have demonstrated through your projects is that, that ability to work collaboratively through what is normally an adversarial relationship. Yeah, so, well, thank you for that. But that's, you know, that's also too, it also gives you, you know, when, when the going gets tough, it also gives you a perspective to say, hey, let's just stop NBC if there's another way to do this. Because sometimes the way to the possible is through the impossible. You know, you think, oh, there's no way I'm going to do that. No way. But then you think, well, what's my end goal here? Do I want to get this project completed and get it online? So, you know, that's kind of what you want to do. Yeah. So that works out well, too. Yeah. So before we run out of time. <laughs> you emptied the brain in 20 minutes or less. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I just, you know, and I've kind of, I haven't given out our phone number. I'm just going to remind people that if you have a question for David or, or a comment for him, you can always give us a call at, at um, 646-721-9887. I'm doing that from memory because I don't have my 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 website up in front of me. But, uh, but yep, 646-721-9887. I had it correct. Um, so if you have a question for David, you can give us a call. Um, you told me a story the last time we got together that I hadn't heard you tell before. Um, and I, and I kind of want to have you, you know, talk about how you are now have an invite to the presidential palace in Uganda. <laughs> oh, you're killing me. Uh, the orphanage where we adopted William from, it was named Jaira. There was a woman there who was the midwife nurse. Her name was Resty. Resty went through this thing in her in her life briefly uh, a few years ago where there was some machete murderers going through the town and they went to her house and she came there at night and 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 talked them through and got the police there and, and basically got these guys captured and was kind of like a national hero all of a sudden this little girl from this village town right so the president gets wind of her calls her up and wants her to be his personal nurse so she's his personal nurse so for the last two years or so she's been his personal nurse our last trip over there in march we, you know, we always look her up and we're there and we had dinner with her the last night we were there. And so we were having a good time and talking with her and all that and we joke and, and so I said, you know, we said, hey, Rusty, you know, what would it be like if, you know, the President's Palace is just across the street basically from where we have dinner near the airport in, in Tebe. And I said, what would it, what would it take if we go see the President? 
And she says, oh, yeah, that would be a very good reason. You would need a very good reason to see the president. And we're like, all right, well, well, just tell me when to pray for him. She goes, well, that might be a good reason. So we get on the plane, and a couple of days later, she calls us, and she says, hey, um, I checked with protocol. I guess protocol is a, you know, a group of people that decide these things. And the president would love to see you. He would love to have you come pray with them. And I'm like, oh, my gosh. So we, we, I call up my metal artist friend, Donnie uh, Warner, to, to create this work of art little piece that has this, you know, uh, a Ugandan warrior with an African tree, and it says, for God and country, which is the motto of Ugandan. So, you know, we're getting ready. So so now we were supposed to be there in June. It, the trip got canceled because they shut the country down because of the Delta variant. So now the country's now back open. So we're considering going back in mid-November. And so for the last few weeks now, Resty's been texting and, and, and calling us and saying, the president's been asking about you and wondering when his friends from America are going to come and visit. <laughs> so who knows? We may be talking all kinds of issues, you know, at the president of Museveni's office when we get there in November. But it, it, it's, it's crazy how how, uh, how how life things can change, but always be ready for the unexpected because – Life's not expecting. <laughs> yeah. But, but not only is it, you know, fascinating you're going to get to go and pray for the president of Uganda. Um, tell me what you're going to tell him. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you also have, have, have had a very, you know, an inspirational moment where you, you, you know, it's like you're kind of wondering what are you going to pray? Well, here's the thing. I mean, Uganda is uh, – 70% of their country is under the age of 20. AIDS, Ebola, H1N1, you know, murderous regimes, all that stuff has wiped out an entire generation of adult fathers. So Uganda is basically a fatherless nation. So for the last 10 years, the ministry we've been doing there is to father young men to be better husbands, better men of character, you know, admirable and integrous boyfriends and sons, and, 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 and just how to be ahead of the household. So Part of the thing that I really respect about President Museveni is as a 30-year-old young man, him and his band of brothers got together and overthrew Idi Amin. Idi Amin was a murderous tyrant that you know needed to come down, and they went in and took over. So for 46 years, they've been running the country. Now, these fatherless young men are now thinking that you know this guy's been here too long, he's a dictator. And so what was put on my heart to tell President Museveni was, look, President Museveni, your legacy – is going to be for you to make sure you lead this country with a father because this is what the country needs. This is what all of our ministry is about over there for the most part. And so I'm really feeling strongly about that because I think it's a really good word for him. And I think, you know, if you're an 80-year-old man who's looking at the twilight years of your life, you want to leave a mark in, in history. And I think, you know, his mark in history will be if he takes these next number of years and really fathers his nation into another era because you know uganda used to be it's the pearl of africa it used to be hugely productive agriculturally all kinds of things so um i'm hoping to get out with my head uh, i'm hoping to get back safe and if not then so be it someone else has to redevelop the rest of springfield <laughs> <laughs> yeah well you know it's it, you've lived a fascinating life we didn't even touch on on you know we've got a few more minutes but you know Things like your your trip around the world photographing cows um. yeah. with John Justina of the Justina yeah he yeah he, he we that was awesome very good and Mongolia was probably the most epic trip ever and 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 that was a, a real cultural experience about how the succeeding culture 
either evaporates or continues on. And so I think, you know, as, as a culture in the United States, we're seeing a lot of our, our cultures changing. And right now we're at a decision point. Do we want the United States to be what our constitution and everything else says we are, or are we going to go a whole different direction? So it's an interesting time to be in politics right now. Very interesting. So, David, is there anything else you want to tell the people from the Springfield District and Lane County uh, about yourself or, um, you know, before we, we go? And I, and I see Robin popping up on the screen. She might have a question, too, because, you know, Robin is a Springfield resident. Hey, Robin. Hey. Hi, David, and thank you for coming on the program. Uh, greatly appreciate it. Hope you'll come back. Thank you. Yeah, I've been uh, I've been a Springfield resident the majority of my life, and I also used to own a business in Springfield for eight years out on Mohawk, Mohawk and Centennial. And considering the fact, or comparing that, because I work in Eugene, I'm pretty much responsible for the building in Eugene. Springfield is a whole lot friendlier. Mm. In fact, another thing that I'll give Springfield kudos for, besides both Eugene and Springfield Police. Springfield is the only city, compared to Lane County and Eugene, that if you have an alarm system, the police will respond directly. You don't have to have a security guard or somebody else do it. So I feel a lot safer in Springfield. Yeah, that's good. And, you, and there is a thing, too. I don't know if I have much time left, but when when Black Lives Matter came and was threatening to burn down the, the middle town of Springfield, there was a lot of people that came out to, quote, unquote, protect their neighborhood. And they were people that you would never expect. And and that really spoke deeply in my heart because it seems to me like sometimes people that are in different classes of culture or economics, they tend to be marginalized, but their heart's in the right place. And I think that's Springfield. Springfield's got a great heart. Their motto is they have, you know, um, a, a proud past and a bright future. And I see nothing but, you know, a proud past and a bright future ahead for all of us. Yeah, and I, I, like, I hope Springfield will stay that way. And having somebody like you, I think, will help because we don't want to become Eugene. No. But then in anti-politics is just as dangerous as politics without a plan. You know, we want to be Springfield. We want to, we're 85% small business. We want to be small business people. We want to be community-minded, and we want to make everyone welcome without having to specify who is welcome. Right. I totally agree. Yeah. Yeah, right. yeah you, don't want to, you don't want to necessarily, you know, demonize Eugene because – we still want everyone in Eugene to have value. Yep. David and I have talked about this over and over again is we both share the vision that we want people to rise to their highest level potential mm-hmm. as, as possible for them because to not want that is to waste human capital. And that's one of the worst things we could be doing in this world. And, you know, you know, yeah, he's a homer, and he wants Springfield to, to, to be the best, you know, a good old homeboy. Uh, and that's, that I, I don't don't blame him for that, you know, just as I, I root for my Elmira Falcons out here. Uh, right. Yeah. Um, it, it's, uh, it's a good thing, but, you know, you don't want that success of your, your particular community to be at the expense of another. Uh, you want everyone to be successful, and that's right. A balance is a Lane County commissioner that I, I deal with all the time. I represent all the way out to Florence, and I want my district to be successful. But I I make a lot of my decisions not based specifically on my district's success. I want the entire county to be successful. 
and to assist the county. And, and you know, having a great partner uh, to work with from Springfield um, helps us just make all the communities in Lane County be successful. And then, so we got maybe about four minutes left, David. I, and I, I give you, again, I, I want to give you an opportunity. You know, Robin jumped in for a second there. Anything else that I, I missed in some of my my questioning and, and, you know, I've got all this deep knowledge, so I'm sure I'm forgetting to ask a question that would expose some of your background or, or, or just some of what you, you think. Is there something you want to tell the Bose Nose folks out there that, that I missed? Well, you know, I've I've always been a, a person that loves a challenge, you know, and obviously coming into the, the arena of being a county commissioner was not my idea. In fact, if I remember right, somebody on a Monday called me. His name was Jay, out of the blue, hadn't heard from you in a while, and you said, hey, um, I was in some meetings this morning and your name came up. Is there any reason that you'd ever think about running into politics? And blew me away because the Saturday prior – was uh, a visiting pastor came to Life Bible Church. This is where we go in Harrisburg. And he kept looking at me in the center of the auditorium. And I'm thinking, well, who's behind me? What, what has he got? And I kept looking behind me thinking somebody was behind me. And when I left the building, I tried to leave the building anyway, he grabbed my wife and I by the collar and said, look, God gave me a word for you that I need to deliver to you. Do you want it? And I'm like, well, who's, who's going to say no to that? You know, it's like, here, I have a Rolls Royce for you. Do you want to drive it? No, I'll drive my Fiat, thanks. So... Uh, <laughs> He, he gives me this he, – he, Jay, Jay, I tell you, he, he reads my mail. This guy didn't know who I was. He was from Arizona. He tells me, you're a developer. You're a restorer. This is what you're doing. This is what I see. You know, you're going to bring people together, people in conflict. You know, you, you're going you're gonna to be in, in, in – you're going to bring community together. You're going to be in the halls and make decisions, all this stuff, right? And I'm just like, whoa, where did that come from? And you call me on a Monday morning two days later. So that was just the start of a series of what some people would call random events, but I would call maybe uh, appointed callings to say, look, you know, uh, the old saying goes, uh, if not me, then who? If not now, then when? And, and, and really what, what I believe in my heart is, that, you know, post-pandemic politics and post-separation and post-division and all the things we're going through right now, someone's got to come up and be a healer. Someone's got to be a restorer. Someone's got to fix what's broken. And if not me, then who? If not now, then when? And, you know, I'll do my best. And if my best isn't good enough, it's still my best. And if I need to learn something, I've got a teachable spirit, and I just put the voters out there and the people out in Springfield and Lane County at large, tell me what I don't know, and we'll make it work. Because if I don't know, I'll never know, and we'll make it work. So I'm here for you to serve the constituents and not my own agenda, because, frankly, I don't have an agenda. But... I love this county and I love this area and I'll be darned if I'm going to get ticked off and move out just because I don't like it. I want to fix it. Great. I, that, that's a great wrap up there. One last thing. How do they get in contact with you and your campaign and do you have a website, a Facebook page, anything like that? Got a Facebook page. It's Love All Springfield and you'll look that, you'll see it. I also have a personal page. Also, let me put a shout out there. There's also a page that I write a weekly blog on. It's called 316 Ministries. You spell it out, three, spell three, spell 16, spell ministries, 316 Ministries. But also for the campaign, remember I'm running for county commissioner, Springfield. It's love all for Springfield, love all, L-O-V-E-A-L-L-F-O-R, Springfield.com. 
All the information is there and the phone number is there. Feel free to reach out anytime. Excellent. Thank you for coming on the Bose Nose Show today. It's been a pleasure having you, um, and it, it's been great catching up uh, over the last month or so as you've been pondering this decision. I'm so happy you made it. Um, I look forward to having you on the county commission, and uh, I, I can't tell you how excited I am about about having you you run and hopefully being successful. And uh, say hi to Nita. And uh, oh, I will. Jade, it's good having you as a friend, too, and, you know, I, I, I wouldn't have done it without your phone call. So the mentorship and what we've been through is, is, is solid gold, and I appreciate it very much. Thank you. Great, and, and thank you for all, you know, your past friendship. Well, that's it for another edition of Bo's Nose Show. We'll be back next week here at 4 p.m. Pacific, coming to you live from beautiful downtown Elmira. Have a great